The name of this service today is Companions for the Journey, and we have several of our members that will be sharing part of their stories. I look forward to this, and our first speaker this morning is Russell Peets. Good morning again. I am Russell Pease, and I have been associated with All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Shreveport, Louisiana, since 1961. That was the year in which my mom and dad, Helen and Alva Pease, while searching for a church home after associations with many other churches and denominations, found this church when it was located on the Shreveport-Barksdale Highway. That makes my situation somewhat unique in that I am a second-generation Southern Unitarian, a very, a very rare breed indeed. <laughs> so, part of my spiritual journey involved finding my own reasons to belong to this church and questioning the path that brought Mom and Dad to all souls. I attended and graduated Texas Christian University, served in the United States Army, and began working for the state of Louisiana, all from a perspective of being skeptical of the establishment. That was a phrase used a lot in those days, and I used it a lot. While visiting an occasional church service at All Souls and other Shreveport churches, I remained firmly committed to an unchurched position. I joined All Souls Church here in Shreveport in 1974, when my now ex-wife, who was also unchurched, wanted a non-traditional wedding ceremony, and since my mom and dad were still involved with All Souls, they suggested that Reverend Billy Joe Nichols, an itinerant Unitarian minister headquartered in Dallas, perform this service. In the following years, I attended a few Sunday services, went to a few Unitarian parties, but it was not until 1977 when I divorced that I became really involved with All Souls and its people. As we live our lives, there are times when we are acutely receptive to learning and growing. Our eyes are open, our ears are open, and most maybe importantly, our souls are open. That was such a time for me. All Souls had hired a young minister about my age who was serving his first ministry named Reverend Burton Carley. So what was being said from this pulpit and by the All Souls congregants that made such a difference in my spiritual outlook. Allow me to share some of those ideas with you. First, I discovered I was a stage one Unitarian. <laughs> like so many of us who walk into a Unitarian church, I was all too clear on what I was rejecting and what religious doctrine in my past I would not tolerate again but what was I for? Stage one is a good beginning place, but it, is it not important to move into stages two, three, four, where we affirm others, ourselves, and our principles? Second, Burton used to refer to God's absurd sense of humor. How true that must be. What else could explain all the non-logical things that happen to good people? who strive to live their lives in a positive way and yet keep being tripped up by unexpected events. 
It must be God reminding us to keep life in perspective and to laugh at ourselves to relieve the stress we create each day. Third, part of moving past stage one Unitarianism was not rejecting ideas because of the language used to communicate those ideas. Hearing the word God did not mean that it had to carry all of the meanings of my Baptist or Disciples of Christ upbringing. At All Souls Church, I was free to find my own definition of God, and with that permission came pride in watching others, other Unitarians, define their spiritualities in ways that were meaningful to them. Fourth, Burton Carley would routinely encourage his congregation to say yes to life. Now, I had heard this phrase before Burton used it, but I had always interpreted it with a heavy dose of Pollyannaism. <laughs> Honestly, we all have days in which we get out of bed feeling poorly or just plain grumpy for no reason at all. And yes is not going to be foremost on our minds. <laughs> well, saying yes to life is at times also saying no to life. And the larger concept involves an opening of the heart and the soul to life in all of its positives and negatives and still celebrating our time on earth. Fifth, and maybe most importantly, at least to me, Burton introduced the concept of grace to me. I can distinctly remember a conversation I had with Burton in which he used the word grace. And I asked him what he meant when he used that word. He replied, and much to my consternation, that grace was not something he could fully explain in words, but that his forgiving process continually transforms our existence and that I would know it when it happened. Well, he was right, and I have since many times over known grace in my life. Like Burton, I cannot fully explain grace to you, but it feels something like, in spite of our shortcomings and the continual mistakes we commit with each other, we are inherently and unerringly forgiven and unconditionally restored to wholeness. I want to say that again. In spite of our shortcomings and continual mistakes we commit with each other, we are inherently and unerringly forgiven and unconditionally restored to wholeness. Rather than original sin, we possess original grace. Now that's powerful. Now, since Burton Carley's departure, there have been other ministers and members at All Souls who have added important ideas to my spirituality. Mom and Dad remained active in All Souls Church until their deaths in 2004. My sister and I were fortunate in knowing Barbara Gerald, who performed their memorial services and to whom we will be fondly grateful the rest of our lives. Thank you, Barbara. For me, All Souls Unitarian Church is much like our solar system. 
where we orbit around this church and its influence. Sometimes close and sometimes at the outermost of our orbit. But nonetheless, always in orbit. I remain a fortunate person in sharing that orbit with you. Thank you. My name is Abbas Musawi. I have been a member of All Souls for three years. I was born in a small town in the eastern part of Lebanon. The town was named after Seth, who is one of Noah's sons. People believe that Seth was buried there, and that's why they have built a 50-foot-long shrine. I started at an early age Asking questions about everything started with my first exposure to the shrine. I asked my mother, who insisted in taking me to the shrine, about the prophet and God. Who insisted? My questioning was discouraged by my mother, and little by little, fear started to spread within me whenever I had thoughts of doubts. It was improper for me to have doubts because of my family historical and religious obligation to the faith. According to family elders, my ancestors are descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, and I am supposed to be a devout, faithful defendant of Islam. The town I grew up in is located in the Bekaa Valley, surrounded by two stretches of mountains. The mountain I was most interested in was the Mount of Lebanon. At an early age, I wanted to see what was behind that mountain. When I did, I saw the Mediterranean Sea. My quest has taken me to several countries and places in five continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, Australia, and finally, America. Growing up in the Middle East exposed me to several conflicts and wars. They included two regional wars between Arabs and Israel, and long years of civil war in Lebanon with Lebanese against Palestinians, Muslims against Christians, Shia against Sunni, Shia against Druze, and on and on. Throughout my childhood, I was bombarded, like all children, with calls to war and songs praising some leaders. Arab leaders were treated as gods, and they acted as gods. Fear of Allah was transferred to fear of the leader. Songs glorifying jihad, the homeland, martyrdom, war, and revenge played all day on the radio. Even when the radio was off, they continued to play in our heads. To ensure the domination, it was necessary to be in control of the minds, hearts, and souls of all citizens. Nothing was more effective than Allah's command for jihad to be presented in music, arts, and the moving, hypnotic, Quranic, 
recitation which confirmed the call for jihad in Allah's own words. I remember, I like to listen to the call to worship that rung from the mosques five times a day. These calls, which echoed from loudspeaker on the mosque minaret, were very beautiful. But that call was often followed by a fiery sermons that called on Muslim to destroy the Jews and infidels, the enemies of God. The Imams preached the highest rewards and honor will be awaiting those who die in the course of jihad. The call to war and the pride of giving up one's life for the sake of Allah was everywhere in the popular culture. During the Civil War, I started seriously questioning and could not buy into this mentality. I don't know exactly why. I started rejecting a culture that was willing to orphan its own children in its obsessive hatred to others. I started questioning the culture of hatred that snatched away many, many of my friends for nothing. Despite the glimpse of hope in my first relationship, I still felt I wanted to leave Lebanon. I needed to get away from it all. The total control over the minds and behaviors of citizens, the increase in Islamic fundamentalism throughout the region, I felt the Middle East was a ticking time bomb that could soon explode. In the Middle East, religious life and one's relationship with God was not a personal matter. Our religious destiny was assigned to us by faith and by birth. People's knowledge of religion was based on fear, not on study, debate, or asking questions. We were born with it, and it was not a matter of choice. Throughout history, each of the major religions owns its share of barbaric actions perpetrated in the name of God. Christian rulers burned heretics, executed witches, marched army into lands to conquer them for Christianity, and brutally killed local populations. We know what the crusader did. And in 15th century Spain, Jews and Muslims who did not convert were brutally executed in a reign of terror we call the Inquisition. Many, many other examples throughout history indicate that more destruction and killing were committed in the name of God. Beside the turmoil, I found myself in with the clashes of cultures in the 1980s between a radical religious background and my newfound American values, despite not speaking the language and having no money, I felt from the beginning there was something special, new and fresh. I started, started feeling free. I had never before considered my life and its all twists and turns to be unusual. Many immigrants come to this great nation in search of material gain, which is fine. However, the biggest prize I gained was my freedom and learning and conditional love. For me, the change came gradually. The process was long and steady. 
My first job in the state was working in a restaurant owned by a Jewish man. This was one of the many tests that followed that really started sharing all the propaganda that filled my head for a long time. A Jewish man was the first to help me. At the time, I was broke, hungry, and lost. Illuminating old myths and lies led me to a new understanding of who I am. My beliefs and other people's beliefs were all put on the table for questioning and reviewing. How can a Muslim accept non-Muslims who are considered infidels? How can a Hindu accept a Christian who says Mahatma Gandhi is destined to hell because he did not accept Jesus as his savior? How can a Jew talk about God with Buddhists when Buddha did not believe in a personal God? My journey ended me at all souls. My quest and question is still going on. I have found that my new faith is not threatened by doubt. The belief is not about blind submission. It's about open-eyed acceptance. Acceptance requires persistent distance from the absolute truth that the, and that distance is doubt. In the fundamental understandings of my belief, practice is more important than theory. Love is more important than law. And mystery is seen as an insight into truth rather than an obstacle. We don't need to think alike to love alike. When I heard this three years ago, I felt I had finally found my spiritual home, a community of people where I felt I belonged. As I said earlier, many immigrants come to this great nation in search of material gain. However, the biggest prize I gained was my freedom to openly believe or not believe. For me, I can tell that little boy who, who traveled hundreds of thousands of miles away looking for a home, you can rest now. I'm finally home, and it's so sweet to be home. Thank you. Okay, I'm not going to top that. So. <laughs> I'm getting the sense that Barbara picked the speakers because she felt that each one of us came here um, on a completely different path. Um, my name is Kim Convertino. I've been a member of All Souls for a few months now, but I've been a Unitarian for several years. My sister and I were raised in a secular household devoid of any religious or spiritual teachings or practices, but never lacking in moral direction. I wouldn't characterize it as atheist or, um, well, maybe agnostic is a better adjective, but I would never felt the need to put it in a box. Um, there was no mention or discussion of God or religion ever, um, but there was neither any, neither criticism or condemnation um, which some experience. My father lived by the golden rule and expected us to do the same. 
He gave us simple, practical guidance. Be courteous. Think of others. Take care of your things. And this extended to our greater world. Um, He hated litter, cigarette butts on the side of the road. Um, And he wanted us to learn to speak clearly and correctly. There was plenty of time later to swear, curse, and use slang. Um, In short, to borrow my husband's phrase, he taught us that life is not all about us. My father treated everyone with respect, regardless of their religious or ethnic background, education, economic status, and he expected us to do the same. He didn't concern himself with people's private choices, nor did he judge them for them. He taught us to focus on what others said and did and how they treated us and those around them. And we were fortunate to live in a northeastern community of like-minded people. Some did attend church. Others did not. No one seemed to keep track. No one ever asked what we believed or if we believed, nor did it seem to matter all that much. I remained grounded in these simple values in the absence of any faith or spirituality throughout college and into early adulthood. Never feeling adrift, never lacking a moral compass, compass, and never feeling as if my life was lacking in any way. When I married my husband and we began to move around with the Air Force, the military community welcomed us. It provided us with an instant network of friends and neighbors and colleagues with whom we socialized and celebrated holidays and promotions, often far from home. This community became our extended family, providing support in times of need and helping us acclimate to our nomadic lifestyle. And in the early days, the relationships I cultivated weren't deep and rich. They were, well, fairly superficial, but it seemed to work for me. Over time, however, I grew disenchanted, not because in times of need, they failed me. Quite the opposite, and I still firmly believe in the concept of the Air Force family and in our responsibility to one another to provide unqualified support and assistance in times of need. Without such support, our military families far from home have no safety net. They must be able to count on their units and their extended families when the bottoms drop out. And they do. My disenchantment stemmed from my realization that this community simply wasn't a community of people with whom I had much in common, aside from the lifestyle. For certain, this didn't hit me all in one day. Rather, as best as I can recall, it was like a twinge, kind of an uncomfortable pang, occasionally pulsing in my gut. I've always worn many hats, and I like to think of myself as multidimensional. I never define myself as a military wife. And while I always sought to learn more about others' dreams and desires and passions, they preferred to focus on this singular dimension that brought us together, as if the the commonality of our spouse's profession was adequate to sustain our relationships. My socially liberal views were always left of most others, and as they influence and continue to influence what I read, what I watch, what I listen to, TV shows, movies, 
I found myself left with little to share. Our conversations devolved into small talk and empty words of chit-chat that didn't really lead anywhere. This inability to relate on a deeper level and the dearth of meaningful conversations made attending our endless coffees and socials difficult, at times painful, and often pointless. These differences don't preclude professional social interactions, but they have precluded the development of the deeper and more meaningful connections I've come to need. Connections which I realized several years ago were missing in my life. Around this time, our daughter started school and we began to search for a religious and spiritual community who could provide her with a liberal, open-minded religious education and perhaps provide me with a group of more like-minded people outside our Air Force family with whom I could converse, laugh, debate, and relate on a deep and meaningful level. And we found Unitarian Universalism. And I found my spiritual home. A home that I didn't realize was missing. And I found a faith whose principles seemed to make so much sense to me. It was as as if I'd always been a UU and just didn't know it. And it all started with my dad and his belief in the golden rule. He set me on my path to UUism. And as I continue our nomadic journey around the world with the Air Force, I will always look to look for a United Unitarian Universalist Church. I will always seek my spiritual home there. I will continue to support and believe in and love my Air Force family. But my UU family will continue to provide the focal point for my spiritual and personal growth. My UU family will continue to ground me and provide the support and friendship I need in life. And I am so thankful that you have welcomed us.